Will you turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9? It's Valentine's weekend. If I'm telling you something, you're probably in trouble. It's the time of year when we focus on relationships, when we give cards and candy and gifts to that special someone to tell them how much we care. And if you were at the Valentine's banquet last night, you enjoyed a humorous look at a search for love in the presentation entitled The Search in the Heartland. This morning I want to stay on the theme of Valentine's because we're going to be talking about the most important relationship of all, our relationship to God. And we're going to discover from the life of Daniel how to search for God with all our heart. Now Daniel chapter 9 contains one of the most amazing prophecies in all of Scripture. It's contained in the final four verses. And because of that, a lot of people skip over the initial part of this chapter just to get to it. But that's a big mistake. Because Daniel chapter 9 also contains one of the greatest prayers in all of Scripture. And that's what I want us to concentrate on this morning in the first 19 verses. We're going to have the unique privilege of going into the prayer closet of Daniel and observing the way he communed with God. I came across an interesting ad this week. It read this way, Modern technology has finally caught up with mankind's spiritual needs. We now have a direct link to the heavens. Our equipment launches your prayers electronically at the speed of light on a powerful microwave radio beam into deep space. As soon as they are sent, they become available to be intercepted by God. If your prayers are not getting through, we can now beam them up. I also saw an ad that invited you to send your prayer request to Jerusalem, where it would be stuck into one of the cracks on the wailing wall. Is technology the answer to communing with God? Is it sending your prayer to the right place? No. Because Daniel didn't have any NASA technology, and Daniel was 900 miles from Jerusalem, and yet he knew how to get close to God. In our technological age, we need to go back to the basics. And this morning, I want to take us back 2,500 years to observe the prayer of Daniel. And I want us to note five characteristics of his prayer that we ought to emulate if we want to have the kind of relationship with God that he had. Number one, his prayer was motivated by the word of God. Notice verse one. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Now, here we're given the setting. It was the first year of the reign of Darius, which would put this at 538 B.C. Chronologically, this occurs right after chapter 5, right after Belshazzar's fatal feast, right after the Medo-Persian Empire took control of the world, and right about the time, either a little before or a little after, the time when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel is about 81 years old. And verse 2 picks it up. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Now, obviously, at this point in time, the Old Testament was not complete because Daniel was writing one of the books. But those that were complete had been compiled by the Jews and they were referred to, as they are here, as the books. And Daniel is reading them. 
Specifically, we're told that he was reading from the book of Jeremiah. And he says he came across the time, the amount of time that Jerusalem was going to be desolate, and it was 70 years. Now, where did he read that? Well, I want you to keep your finger in Daniel 9 and turn over to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah 25. Notice verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, Jeremiah prophesied before the captivity. In fact, when Daniel is reading this, he has now been dead for about 35 years. But he says here that Jerusalem will be a desolation for 70 years. And then what will happen? Verse 12. Then it will be that when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. Now Daniel's reading this. 70 years are going to pass, and then God's going to punish the king of Babylon. And Daniel says, hey, that just happened. Because Babylon has just been destroyed and the Medo-Persian Empire has taken over. So he gets his calculator out and he starts to figure. And he says, you know, I've been in Babylon for just shy of 70 years. And so he reads on in Jeremiah and he comes to chapter 29. Notice verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. After 70 years, not only will Babylon be destroyed, but God says he will take his people, Israel, back to their land. Now, when Daniel reads this, what does he do? Well, keep your finger in Jeremiah 29 and come back to Daniel chapter 9. Because it says, when he read it, verse 3, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him. Two things stand out here. Number one, Daniel took prophecy literally. When it said 70 years, it meant 70 years. He didn't try to spiritualize that into something else. He knew that 70 years meant 70 years. So he took prophecy literally. Secondly, he took prophecy seriously. Because when he came to grips with the truth of prophecy, it drove him to his knees. Now some people study prophecy and they want to run around to conferences and read books and compare views and argue and debate. And sometimes we get so caught up in the exercise of understanding prophecy that we miss the point. The point is to drive us to our knees. And that's exactly what God expected. In fact, if you go back to Jeremiah chapter 29, after giving this prophecy in verse 10, notice what God says. Verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Daniel reads that in Jeremiah, and what does he do? He gets down on his knees, and he begins to seek God with all his heart. Daniel chapter 9 is an illustration of that concept of seeking God with all your heart. But the first thing I want you to notice is that Daniel's prayer was motivated by the Word of God. And that's to be the pattern in our lives. 
Oftentimes people ask me, well, in my devotion, should I pray first and read the Bible second or should I read the Bible first and pray second? Well, I don't think it really matters that much because sometimes you come to the Lord in prayer and you've just got a burdened heart to pray. But at other times you come to the Lord and you're all dried up. And it's at those times that I recommend that you get into the Word of God because just like we see with Daniel, the Word of God prepared his heart to pray. And so the first characteristic is that it's motivated by the Word of God. Second characteristic is that it's measured by the will of God. When Daniel read in the book of Jeremiah that God was going to keep his people in captivity for 70 years and then return them to the land, he believed it, and then he did a very strange thing. He prayed that God would do what God already said he was going to do. You say, well, if God already said he was going to do it, why did Daniel need to pray? Well, that's an important question because the answer to that question teaches us an important principle about prayer. Prayer is not about me changing the will of God. Prayer is about me lining up with the will of God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says, If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. The key to effective prayer is discerning the will of God. That's why when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, it was, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, prayer is not me trying to get God to change His mind. Why would I want God to change His mind? God's mind and God's will for me is always what's best. That's why in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, it says that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. Daniel just read in Daniel or in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, to give you a future and a hope. You see, prayer is not getting God to adjust His program to what I want. Prayer is me adjusting my life to what God wants. And so the second characteristic of Daniel's prayer is that it's measured by the will of God. Prayer is not about changing God. It's about changing me. Third characteristic. It's manifest in passion. Look at verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now this is no mamby-pamby prayer. It is passionate. He is seeking God with his whole heart. And I think that's evident by several things in verse 3. First of all, I see here that Daniel is focused. He says, I gave my attention to the Lord. That is literally, I set my face on the Lord. Which means he got away from all the other distractions in life. And he focused on seeking God. He took the phone off the hook and he canceled his appointments. He was focused on God. Secondly, he was fervent. And I see, think we see that in that little phrase, with fasting. Now, we don't talk a whole lot about fasting today. But you know, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Daniel, Esther, David, Hannah, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, all fasted. In the New Testament, Jesus fasted, Paul fasted. 
In church history, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, John Wesley, George Mueller, and multitudes of others fasted. Now, we're not commanded in Scripture to fast. And fasting can become a pious ritual like it did for the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. But in Daniel's case, it was an expression of the fervency of his prayer. He laid aside a physical desire so that he might focus on a spiritual desire. And then the third thing I see in this verse is that he was fanatical. He put on sackcloth and ashes, which tells me that he wasn't just casually throwing up a prayer to God. He dressed in the clothes of repentance and covered himself with ashes. He was just a little bit fanatical. If you did that today, probably a couple guys in white coats would come with a straitjacket to take you away. Daniel's prayer was passionate. In fact, when we get to verse 21, he says that he was in extreme weariness. He wore himself out praying. And if we're going to seek God with all our heart, we're going to need to be passionate as well. And I'm afraid that's lacking in the lives of many Christians today. I heard one pastor describing his church, and he said, I'm sure that our church will go first in the rapture because the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. <laughs> That's not acceptable. Prayer takes energy. It requires fervency. James 5.16 says the fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Prayer cannot be an indifferent thing. And the third characteristic of Daniel's prayer is that it was manifest in passion. John Bunyan said, In prayer, it is better to have a heart and no words than words and no heart. Fourth characteristic. It was marked by confession. Verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. This whole prayer is a prayer of confession. And in it, Daniel shows us five qualities of real confession. This is real confession, number one, because Daniel makes no pretense. He calls it in verse 4, a prayer of confession. He confesses sin all the way through it. He's dressed in sackcloth and ashes. He's making no pretense. He's not pretending to be somebody he's not. He's coming in humility before the Lord to confess his sins. And I am convinced that the foundation, fundamental attitude of prayer should be, I have no reason to be here. When we come before the Lord, there ought to be a little voice in the back of our mind constantly saying, what am I doing in the presence of God? You see, that's humility. I don't belong there. I'm only there by the grace of God. That's quite a contrast to the Pharisee in Luke 18. He came before the Lord and said, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other people. If anybody belongs here, I do. A little boy was visiting his grandfather on his farm and grandfather took him out into the fields to see the wheat crop. Some of it was standing up straight and some of it was leaning over. The little boy said to his grandpa, 
I bet those nice tall weed are the really strong ones. And his grandpa said, no, son. Those ones you see that are standing up nice and tall are standing up that way because they have no fruit. They are not producing anything. And then he turned to his little grandson and he said, the bent ones are the best ones. That's true in God's field as well. The bent ones are the best ones. In fact, God is opposed to those who stand up tall. Daniel was a bent one. He made no pretense. Secondly, this is a real confession because Daniel makes no excuses. Look at verse 5. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Five different ways Daniel says we're guilty. He's just trying to say it every way he can think of. We have sinned, we have acted wickedly, we have done wrong. You know, some words seem to stick in our throats. And one phrase that particularly sticks there is, I have sinned. If you're married, the hardest words seem to be, Honey, I was wrong. You ever driving down the road on the highway and your wife says, We should turn there. And you say, I know where we're going. And a few minutes later, it dawns on you that you should have turned there. You know how far a man will drive <laughs> to keep from admitting to his wife that he was wrong? Why is it that we don't want to say, I have sinned? Well, I think the reason is because it's painful. When I say I have sinned, that's a blow to my pride. It really puts me back in the place I belong. But it's also a blow to my selfishness because implicit in saying I have sinned is also saying I'm not going to do it anymore. Ian Blakelock said, The period of our devotions must contain a moment of pain. It is not God's intention that we should writhe under it or linger in it, but specific and sincere confession of our own sin is no joyous exercise. And sometimes to avoid that pain, you know what we do? We make excuses. We say, God, I sinned, but under the circumstances, I believe you would have to say I had no choice. God, I sinned, but there are some very good reasons. You see, when I do that, I'm, not, I'm no longer confessing. I'm defending myself. Daniel is really confessing because he makes no excuses. Look at verse 6. After saying in verse 5, we have sinned, he comes to verse 6 and he says, Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets. He doesn't say we sinned, but we didn't know. He says we sinned and we knew everything we need to, needed to know, but we didn't listen. He doesn't make excuses. Thirdly, this is real confession because Daniel makes no comparisons. If you've been with us through the study of Daniel, you know that spiritually, Daniel is head and shoulders above the rest of the people in Israel. In fact, back in chapter 6, all the bigwigs in Babylon tried to find some dirt on Daniel, and so they went to 60 Minutes in 2020 and got their hidden cameras and went in and tried to find something, and they got nothing on Daniel because he was above 
reproach. And yet we don't find Daniel here comparing himself with others and saying, I'm better than they are. We don't find him critiquing other people and saying, I'm the most righteous guy in Israel. No, in fact, Daniel identifies with his people in sin. Notice verse 5. We have sinned. Verse 6. We have not listened. Verse 8. Open shame belongs to us. Verse 9 at the end. We have rebelled. Verse 10. We have not obeyed. Verse 11 at the end. We have sinned. Verse 13. We have not sought the favor of the Lord. Verse 14 at the end. We have not obeyed His voice. Verse 15 at the end. We have sinned. We have been wicked. You see, Daniel is not standing off to the side. Daniel is taking the blame. When's the last time you quit complaining about your kids and got down on your knees and said, we have failed as a family? When's the last time you quit looking around the church and comparing yourself with other people and making them the subject of your gossip and got down on your knees and said, God, as a church, we have sinned? See, that's the nature of true confession. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are all members of one body. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. We are linked to one another. And that's why when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, it was give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our transgressions. It's plural. Real confession doesn't compare with others. It identifies with others. And then this is real confession because, fourthly, Daniel makes no compromises. Daniel isn't measuring himself against others. He's measuring himself against God. And when you measure yourself against God, there's no compromise. You don't meet in the middle somewhere. You go to the bottom. And in true confession, we get an honest look at God. And by honestly looking at God, it reveals who we are. And we see that in Daniel's prayer. Look at verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned. God, You're great. You're awesome. You're faithful. You're loving. We've sinned. Look at verse 7. Righteousness belongs to You, O Lord, but to us, Open shame. God, you're holy. And when he sees God's holiness, he sees his own shame. Verse 9. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, but we have rebelled against him. When we view God as he really is, repentance and confession become the norm. And that's why the more you mature as a Christian, the more you confess. As I grow as a Christian, I don't get to the point where I don't confess anymore. I actually confess more often about more things. Early in his ministry, Paul said these words in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles. In the middle of his ministry, he said these words in Ephesians 3, 8, I am the very least of all the saints. And at the end of his ministry, he made this statement in 1 Timothy 1, 15, I am the chief of sinners. 
Early, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. In the middle of his ministry, he said, I'm the least of the saints. At the end of his ministry, when he was most mature, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. Now, what happened to Paul? Did he get more sinful? No. He got closer to God. And when you get closer to God and His holiness, you get more sensitive to your own sin. Someone told me what the church steeple stands for. Supposedly, it means that the closer you get to God, the smaller you become. That's true. Fifthly, this is real confession because Daniel makes no complaints. Look at verse 11. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God said to Israel, if you obey my law, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I'll curse you. Daniel is saying, we disobeyed and we got God's curse. And one of the elements of true confession is that when God chastens you for your sin, you accept the responsibility. I've seen Christians who disobey and disobey and disobey, and when they finally get the consequences for their sin, they say, why would God do this to me? You see, the expression of true confession is, God, I deserve it. I'm guilty. I brought it on myself. Look at verse 12. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us this great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. God's just keeping his word. He's done something that never happened before to Jerusalem. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to thy truth. With all the calamity God brought, we never turned around. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all His deeds which He has done, but we have not obeyed His voice. Daniel is under the chastening hand of God along with Israel, and he's saying, God, you're right. You're right. We deserve it. So there's, there's the qualities of real confession. Makes no pretense, makes no excuses, makes no comparisons, makes no compromises, makes no complaints. Daniel's prayer is marked by confession. And then fifthly and finally, the characteristic is that Daniel's prayer is magnifying to God. Notice verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who has brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for thyself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. Now, Daniel reminds God that he's the one who delivered Israel out of Egypt. And he says, on that occasion, you made a name for yourself. When God brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army were destroyed, all the nations heard about that. They knew about God. But go on with me in verse 16. It says, O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. There's the first request of the prayer. God, turn away your wrath. Why? Because we, your people, have become a reproach. People are, in the nations are looking at us and saying, their God isn't even strong enough 
to overcome the gods of the Gentiles. And then he goes on in verse 17. So now our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications. And for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. God, your reputation is at stake because we're your people and it's your sanctuary. Verse 18. O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. Listen, for we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. We don't have any bargaining chips, God. We don't have any merit in ourselves. We're simply claiming your compassion. And then we get the finale of the prayer and the really request in verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For thine own sake, O my God, do not delay, because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. God, hear, forgive, listen, take action, don't delay. In other words, do what you said you were going to do. Why? For your name's sake. You see, Daniel isn't asking God to do something that will make Daniel look good. He's asking God to do something that will make God look good. When God answers this prayer, God will get the glory. And let me tell you something. When you can honestly say that about your prayer requests, then you'll start getting some answers. On this Valentine's Day, do you want to refresh your relationship with God? Then follow the pattern of Daniel's prayer life. Let your prayers be motivated by the Word of God, measured by the will of God, manifest in passion, marked by confession, and magnifying to God. In 1872, Dwight L. Moody attended a meeting out in a hayfield in Ireland. He heard a man say, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is completely surrendered to God's will. Years later, he was seated up high in Charles Spurgeon's tabernacle in London and Spurgeon used those same words. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is completely surrendered to God's will. And D.L. Moody bowed his head and he said, God by your spirit, I want to be that man. And despite the fact that he had no formal training and many physical drawbacks, D.L. Moody was used by God in mighty ways that are still impacting people today. Because he found out what God was doing and he got in on it.